Hello, welcome to another episode of GDPR Now, a podcast dedicated to all things related to data security and data privacy, brought to you by Data Protection for Business, and this is DPO. Your host today is me, Karen Heaton, owner of Data Protection for Business, recording from my home office in southwest London. This episode is part of our series of updated podcasts addressing security and privacy concerns resulting from the coronavirus pandemic and the shift in working practices for millions of businesses across the UK and the world. In this episode, we're going to talk about track and trace apps, the views from Australia. So across the airwaves from Sydney, Australia, we are delighted to have Catherine Sainty and Belindy Rowe from Sainty Law. Sainty Law is a boutique law firm specialising in privacy, big data, technology, cybersecurity, and a range of other specialisations. So delighted to have you on the show today. Catherine, can you tell us a little bit about the firm and why you started it? Thanks very much, Karen. It's lovely to be with you today. Um, thank you for inviting us to speak. Uh, Sainty Law was founded uh, in t- 2007. Um, we are a firm which specialises in a consultancy style of practice where we look at advising clients on a range of issues that help them with their businesses. My expertise was in technology, communications and media um, and privacy around that time was a newish field. Um, Mm -hmm. My vision was to ensure that we could offer clients a service that covered the whole of those converging technologies in a way that produced really good business outcomes. So my passions are actually making clients' businesses work better. And the opportunities to do that have increased enormously in this rather upheaval, time of upheaval with the COVID-19 pandemic. It has. It's been an incredible time. Businesses have had to do things that they've never had to contemplate before. It's it's been uh, quite unprecedented. That's that's great. Thank you, Catherine. Uh, so, Belindy, can you tell us a little bit about um, your time at the at the firm and the sorts of uh, clients that you get involved with? I can. Thanks. Thanks for having us, Karen. Um, I've been at Sainty Law for nearly two and a half years now. Um, similar to Catherine, I have a background in IP data and some Commonwealth contracting. Um, at Sainty Law, we work with tech savvy clients and we help to drive their businesses using data. Um, For example, some of the work that we've recently been involved with is helping broadcasters who collect audience segments to improve viewer experiences. Um, We work with energy disruptors who create marketplaces for trading energy use data. And recently, we've been doing a fair bit of work with health providers, and we help to develop data solutions to improve their public health outcomes. So it's always broad and interesting work at St. Law. Broad and interesting and very current. And obviously with the, the big changes in the privacy regulations, that that mixing of technology, data and privacy comes together very nicely. It does. <laughs> which quite nicely brings us on to our topic of today, which is track and trace apps. Um, we're really pleased to be able to um, he- hear and understand what is happening in Australia around this uh, subject, because obviously there's much discussion here in the UK and Europe about these uh, apps and how they work. So, um, Catherine, could you maybe just give us a a quick overview of the app test and trace um, programme in Australia and, and what you're seeing there? Yes, Karen, I can. It's been a very interesting time. 
we have had a um, application called COVID Safe developed by the Australian government. Uh, it was developed to enhance the current contact tracing processes, which were manual, as with mm-hmm. most places. And the app's based on the Singaporean contract tracing technology. Um, it operates by identifying people who may have come into contact with somebody who's tested positive to COVID-19, so appropriate advice about uh, testing and isolating can be provided to that purpose. So okay. to that person, sorry. The purpose is to identify and isolate. So you can minimise the number of people becoming sick and infecting others, minimise the mortality rate, manage the demand on the health system and help individuals manage their own risk and their community's risk. Okay. And on what regulatory basis has the Australian government brought this in? Well, um, what happened was that because the pandemic was developing so fast, um, the time frame around the development of an app was tight. And given our location in Asia, effectively, we had strong influence from what other countries such as Singapore, Taiwan and um, South Korea did so that mm-hmm. there was a real sense of the benefit that a contract tracing app could have um, provided that you got it out there um, dis- disseminated quickly enough. If you think about the timeline, Australia shut down in late March and the app was launched in late April, which is pretty impressive. That is impressive, yeah. Um, The Commonwealth did the right thing in developing the app. It also had um, commissioned an independent third party to run a privacy impact assessment on the app because of the anticipated uh, concern that the population here might have about government collecting data. Who was the third party to set of interest? It was a law firm. Uh, oh, called right, Maddox, okay. yeah, and that's mm-hmm. interesting because it's it's sort of uh, I think the combination of uh, a law firm that does a lot of government it, it is a law firm that does a lot of government work and also um, has a strong technology background. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so the PIA recommended quite a lot of um, changes in the way in which the data was collected and 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 used. And the the PIA was publicly released around about the same time as the app. So Australians could read the report, including the recommendations and the government's response to those recommendations before making the decision to download the app. Do you think the Australian government was able to learn anything about that process from Singapore and Taiwan, for example? Do you think there was some additional learnings that they were able to get because of their geographical proximity? Oh, inevitably. I think that um, that played a really big part. I think that the technology Mm. that our app was based on is actually the same as the Singaporean technology, so you had a real head start. Um, Right, okay. But to insert it into a different um, cultural environment where... Uh, unlike Singapore, Australians had to be persuade, have to be persuaded to, to take up the app. In Singapore, right. it's a requirement. And we, we, we'll come to in a minute the, the nature of the legislation around the app because that um, quite interestingly shows another difference between the Asian countries and ourselves in terms of 
the requirement to use it. It's totally voluntary to take right. up the app, uh, whereas okay. in those countries it's not. It's really interesting. And I'm um, right in saying that in Australia that health is organised at the state level, um, but the, the app is being rolled out at the federal level. Yes, <laughs> there lie lots of problems. And I think similar here, because in the UK, we have devolved health to the region. So in Scotland, Northern Ireland, uh, Wales and England, they have their own, they manage their own health services. But obviously, in the same way, the app is coming from central government. So it's, it's interesting. You've got uh, some future issues that we can perhaps learn from here. Yeah. Well, look, let me just quickly explain the legislative background for the app and how that works, because that's at the Commonwealth level or the federal level. And then Bell can take us through how the app actually works, which draws out some of the um, practical difficulties that you have in a federal system. So in terms of the legislative regime, um, the first thing that happened was that the Minister for Health, Federal Minister for Health, made a determination under a piece of legislation called the Biosecurity Act, Um, and that's an emergency powers type of legislation. And the determination was for the purposes of providing interim privacy protection for information collected voluntarily through the app. Um, And the the determination was effectively temporary, Um, and that allowed the, the minister to make the determination rather than the uh, issue to have to go to Parliament because here Parliament had um, stood down for right. a period and so that mm-hmm. this made it much easier for a fairly executive um, action. Then in May the um, Privacy Amendment um, Act was passed. It basically had about a week of visibility to the public it was effectively bringing the operation of the COVID Safe app under the privacy legislation, so that the operations um, of it. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, the usual regime that people are familiar with, the APPs and the other requirements, um, are, are were able to be drawn on, um, and the app legislation both amended the Commonwealth Privacy Act but incorporated privacy protection specifically relating to the use of the COVID app. Some of those were, and most interestingly, that the uh, the app is um, voluntary. You cannot mm. require an individual to download, use or upload data through the app. So it's an offence to make a person, for instance, an employer, um, to refuse to allow an employee to enter into the building if they haven't downloaded the app. Um, so, sorry, you said it's an offence for an employer yeah. to refuse to allow an employee into the building. Oh, sorry, to refuse. It's an offence to make it a condition it's an that they oh, have really? the app okay. to enter. Yeah. So if, for instance, the employer said, I'll let you all come back to work, provided that you've downloaded the app, because we really want to make sure that the building is safe and your fellow employees are safe. You cannot do that. You have to say, we recommend that you download the app. It would be a really good thing that you download the app, but to push it further and make it conditional or a requirement is prohibited. And and what about asking employees if they've had symptoms, recording that, taking their temperatures, et cetera, et cetera? Are they allowed to do that? 
At this stage, that is all voluntary and it hasn't really become an issue for uh, employers and employees because until this week, um, there was virtually no offices open because our um, restrictions on gathering were such that you you couldn't have any more than a few people in a fairly large space. And so those issues around uh, people voluntarily uh, being tested or not being tested, wishing to go to work or wishing to stay home, those are issues that we've yet to confront. Um, okay. As 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 the restrictions become lessened, I think that they will become very topical. Yeah, oh, well, it'll be interesting to follow that mm. and see how that develops. Actually, yeah. So, uh, thank you for explaining that, Catherine. Um, Belindi, I think you were going to be able to tell us a little bit more about the app itself. I think that'd be um, useful to to know to understand. Yeah, sure. The um, design of the app is pretty interesting. It's um. Of course, it's intended to help with the process of contract tracing that's already happening. So if someone is diagnosed with COVID, the idea is that you would probably want to be able to go back and see who they've been in close contact with, just in case the people that they've been in contact with also need to be tested or they need to isolate Mm -hmm. themselves. So the app will hopefully speed up that process and provide a tool for eliminating the gap in people's memories about who they've been around when they're asked to recount exactly who they've been in contact with um, while okay. contagious. So what are they tracking? What what information are they tracking to to work out who they've been in contact with? Yeah, so to do this, the app collects data. And when you first sign up to the app, you're asked to register your name, but you don't have to give your real name. You can use a fake name if you want. Um, mm-hmm. And you also enter your phone number and your age range and your postcode. And the information, information such as age range and postcode are used to do things like t- to um, ascertain a particular area where there might be a hotspot of cases coming up or the age range might help authorities understand what level of risk you are falling into. Um, so the app works by creating an encrypted code which is shared over Bluetooth with other people who have also downloaded the app on their phone and the, and okay. the people and people who can be considered a close contact. And a close contact for the purposes of the app is someone that you have been within one and a half metres of for about 15 minutes or more. So right. the app is not going to talk over Bluetooth to everyone that you walk past. You have to have been in contact for 15 minutes. So that's quite interesting. They've set it at 15 minutes. Um, I don't know, is there some, well, you might not know the answer, I don't know, some scientific (laughs) determination that says it has to be 15 minutes. That's quite a long time, actually. You know, if you can consider if you're you're in a shop buying an ice cream or a coffee or something, you might only be in there for five minutes. Yeah, yeah, it is. Close to people, it's really, yeah, it's interesting. It is is quite long. I'm... I'm not aware of any, uh, it's obviously based on medical advice, but I'm mm-hmm. not aware of any analysis that's actually been undertaken about how well um, these types of apps are working and whether that 15-minute um, time frame is, yeah. is, is working well. Um, um, if I can interrupt here, I think partly it's a balancing act between the ability to collect enough information 
and the ability to collect too much so that if it were seven minutes, for instance, you might end up collecting more that was uh, less useful and the, the job that you have in terms of the tracing then becomes a broader job um, with yes. a, you know, like a declining um, hit rate, if you like. Yes. So I think, yeah. I, I think that there is no great science, but I think it's more a balancing act. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all of the IDs um, that are collected and stored on the app are encrypted and they're stored on the app for 21 days before being deleted. However, if before that those 21 days are up, if you're diagnosed with COVID, then at that point health authorities will ask if you have the app um, and if you do have the app, they'll ask if you are willing to share the IDs that have been collected by your app. So at that point, there's another permission where um, you would give your consent to say, yes, I'm happy for those IDs to be uploaded to the central government server, which is being called the National COVID Safe Data Store. Um, And those IDs may be used by authorities to contact the people that you've been in close contact with. Okay, so all the data has been stored locally on the device and only uploaded when the user gives consent to yeah, so, the authorities. So it's, there's two levels. different levels. from the way we're trying to do it here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so there's two levels of consent. So there's consent when you hand over your information when you register, which is that, you know, name, yeah. phone number, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then there's a second consent that you're asked for at the point where you've been diagnosed um, and you're giving consent to upload the, the data that's stored in the app. Okay, so first of all, I guess just to summarise from what I've heard then, it's it's voluntary. Uh, employers can't mandate that employees have the app. And then even when people register, and sadly, if they contract the disease, they then got to consent again before they give the authorities the information that's been captured on the app. Yeah, that's so, right. Um, it, so I think it would be perhaps great to speak to you again in about six months' time to see how this see how the app is working. Um, I, I don't know what percentage of the population need to adopt one of these apps in order to make them effective, but I've, you know, I've heard the, the the number of sixty percent being used widely, uh, and so it would be really informative to know what percentage of the Australian population are going to be downloading the app and using it? So, Karen, um, the, the the numbers that we've got so far are not, are not terribly helpful. We, the, the parliamentarians were saying that it needed to be 40% of smartphone users who downloaded the app. We know that um, there's approximately... 6 million, more than 6 million people who have downloaded the app at the end of May. We don't know whether or not people have disabled the app or kept the app operating. So there's a there's a, a, a dearth of data um, about the uptake. And um, the problem is that only there's only one reported case of the app having been used so far. So I think we are very much in the um, early phase and 
we think about it sort of in our own area. We think about it as being, I think, sort of uh, an app that is going to be more valuable in any second wave or third wave um, rather than in the place that Australia finds itself now because here we have limited cases. We're very, very lucky. We have limited cases. But as the population returns to normal living and people go to school and go to work and go out socialising, there is more opportunity for contact and therefore the track and trace necessity will probably come into place perhaps yeah 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 that's that's true isn't it because you're right you don't have many cases and you know from a behavioral perspective individuals might think well you know you know it's it's hardly present here why do I need to bother but um you know six million downloads is quite a lot for the population of Australia It, it yes it is it is so that's kind of that's um, encouraging. Yeah, very encouraging. But unfortunately, <laughs> what isn't so encouraging is there's no metrics of success that have been announced yet. So we're not really sure right. what success looks like, other than obviously no spread of the disease. I think it'll all evolve. I think it will. And I think your, your point was well made in, in, in that we're in the first phase um, and we're actually preparing ground now in the UK and Australia for future infections. Um, whether it's COVID-19 or any others, because we've never done this before. So it's a big cultural shift for us, Mm. whereas other countries like Taiwan, Singapore, you know, they've got a head start, and China, they've obviously got a head start. They've done this before. Mm. So that's great. That's really interesting. Thank you both. Um, Unfortunately, that brings us to the end of this episode of GDPR Now. Catherine Belindi, um, if our listeners want to contact you, um, I'm going to add your contact details to the show notes. Um, but do either of you have any final words for the listeners? Oh, look, my my only final comment would be to say that, um, well, firstly, thank you for the opportunity to be involved with this series and we look forward to the rest of the Track and Trace series. I think it's incredibly valuable to hear what's going on in other jurisdictions because uh, it, it helps us do the cross-pollination of ideas and solutions. Um, And from that point of view, to the extent that any of your listeners are interested in what's happening here, they just have to reach out and we'd be very happy to um, share any information that we have that might be of help to them. Of course. And Belindi? No, the only thing that I would really say is this process has shown us that the public do want information um, about what's happening to their data. I mean, the government made a really good decision, I think, by releasing the PIA and the source code for this app at the same time as releasing the app. And maybe the general public didn't read the PIA or analyse the source code, but that allowed privacy professionals and IT professionals um, to do the analysis and contribute to the public conversation about it. And I think that's contributed to the uptake of the app. So it really is privacy in action, I think. Um, This is when data protection laws come into their own when things like this happen. So it's great examples to be living through. Thank you both very much. Um, To our listeners, if you have any questions or issues you'd like addressed on the show, please contact me. Or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, um, my email address is info at dpo4business.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Thanks again to Catherine Belindi for a really interesting conversation. So that's it from me, Karen Heaton. I hope you will join us again soon.
Take care. Stay safe.